0: The earth is the Lord's and all that is in it, the world and those that live in it, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it on the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand? in this holy place. Those who have clean hands, let's see them. Pure hearts. Those who do not lift up their souls to what is false. Who do not swear deceitfully. They will receive a blessing from the Lord. And vindication from the God of their salvation. Such is the company of those that seek him. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient of doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is the king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient of doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts is the King of glory. Well, that was a rather fun embodiment. <laughs> Um, I did my best to try to read that, as the children suggested, in orientation fashion. And I'm always reminded that one person's orientation is disorientation for someone else. And my guess is, trying to read that maybe as a psalmist from the time of Solomon, um, that reading wasn't very orienting for us, but sort of disorienting um, When I teach a class on the Psalms, I play different versions of old hundredth, right? The Psalm 100 that's been set to a really famous hymn. And um, we go all the way through it and hear everything from the classical choral to sort of the country music cover. And it's fascinating for me to watch what happens in the room as the room immediately divides, right? And those that like the class, the classical me, right? And I I even have it, I think in, um, I have the queen in it, the queen of England singing, you know? I just love this, I just absolutely love it. And I just look and some of the other students' faces are just like, oh my gosh, my skin is crawling off me. And then when they get to sort of the country music, single artist, Taylor Swift wannabe, I'm just like, oh, Lord, how long is this? I just want this to be over, and they're, like, tapping their toes, and you know what I'm talking about. It's a good thing for us to remember. It's a good thing for us to remember how that orientation framework actually serves to divide the people of God. And I think, although I don't want to talk a lot about this today, The sermon will end giving us opportunity to think about ways in which our comfort around orientation perspectives might be keeping us from the great work of God that's happening around us. But first, what I'd like to do is um, talk about the ways in which um, songs and lyrics can change because that's certainly true of Psalm 24. Um, So I think everyone in here has heard at least once in their life, I Can't Get No Satisfaction by the Rolling Stones. Um, I'm wondering if you've ever heard the cover of that song by Devo. This version of Satisfaction performed by the uber nerds, Devo. Um, If you've heard it, it couldn't be further from the sleazy, blues rock of the Rolling Stones. Um, That has been described as a frustrating, yelling cry against an increasingly shallow world. Um, With Devo, it morphs into a jittery new wave comment on the alienation of the consumer and consumer culture that's even more pronounced than that sort of existential angst. Uh, Let's talk about Deck the Halls. Deck the Halls began as a Welsh drinking song. Think beer pong. And that has been adapted or covered and now becomes a regular part of our Christmas season. Um, Another Christmas song, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, written by Charles Wesley, uh, originally began as Hark All the Welkin Rings. Who knows what Welkin are? Welkin. It's the celestial chorus, of course. How does it go now? Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Glory to the Newborn King. Very good. So. We're used to this happening in our culture. Did you know that Psalm 24 originally was a psalm written to glorify the god Baal? It was a Canaanite psalm. If you listen to the um, um, stained glass window talk this week, I mentioned that years ago, 30 Thirty-five years ago, I wrote a paper on this in a uh, course on interreligious dialogue, and the person was so excited who taught this that I actually got an A-plus in that course. Um, it wasn't my find um, at all. I was trying to learn the significance of this. It was, this was originally pointed out by Frank Moore Cross, who built the Ancient Near Eastern Studies Program At Harvard. Um, For those of you who follow these things, how things sort of go, it started with Albright at Johns Hopkins, then it went to Harvard, and then eventually came to Princeton, and so on. Um, But Baal, a Canaanite god, and a god that continued to be worshipped among the Israelites. And it was It was hard because sometimes, I mean, Baal, just Baal was worshipped. And if I could tell you more about Baal, and for those of you who haven't really thought about this but are up on your pop culture, just think Wolverine and X-Men, and you're there. Um, You know, Baal... Baal was such an impressive god that even the Egyptians at one point worshipped Baal. Um, But what was more sort of, this was subtle, but what Israelites often tried to do is to worship Yahweh in such a way that Yahweh would act like Baal. You see the difference? And that's probably how Psalm 24 comes into being. Psalm 24. Um, This is what one commentator says about the scene that this depicts in Canaanite mythology. Um, This is a situation where um, and, and I think this will all make sense, but it's going to sound a little nerdy for a while, but I started with Devo. Um, so Baal, that means Lord, has brothers, and two of the brothers are Yam, that means sea, and Nahar, that means river. Okay? And as all good, devious brothers do, they capture Baal and they want to kill him and take over all of his power. So there's this scene in Canaanite mythology when Baal escapes and marches into the palace where all the other gods are seated and who have already given their allegiance to river and sea. The gods lowered their heads unto their knees, unto the thrones of their princeships. Baal confronted them. Why, O oh gods, have you lowered your heads onto your knees, onto the thrones of your princes, princess, princeships? I see gods. That the tablets of Yom's messengers, a message from Yom, of the embassy of ruler Naha, which is ruler River, are humiliating you. Are scaring you. I sort of thought when I read this time instead of the tablets we could say the Twitter feed. You know what I'm talking about. Lift up, O God, your heads from your knees. From the thrones of your princeships, I shall answer the messengers of Yom, the embassy of the ruler of River. Now think about that for a moment when you hear, again, the words of Psalm 24. The first is, the earth is Yahweh's, and everything that's in it, and all who live in it. And he has set this up on the sea. And he has founded it on the river. Now in Canaanite mythology, seas and rivers were symbolic of the greatest um, destruction, chaos, even evil. So what the psalmist is saying is that chaos, evil, destruction actually does not serve any uh, threat to Yahweh. Does that make sense? But using the language of the culture. But then the question is, who could threaten Yahweh? And in the psalm, it becomes who? It becomes us. So the question is, who's worthy to be in this God's presence? Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? Those who have clean hands and pure hearts. In our present context right now, That would mean political officials who have not flipped. Make sense? Who is loyal to Yahweh? Who does not try to split their bets? This is at a time um, when this psalm comes into being when Israel was not monotheistic, the best Israelites were monolatrous, it meant that they recognized the reality of other gods, but they chose to worship Yahweh alone. We sometimes think that that would be all the re- Israelites. In reality, it was a very small number. Uh, to have this make sense to us, what a monoliter. Would commit to doing is going to Yahweh always for everything, even if you weren't sure that Yahweh had that expertise. So if you're going to give birth here in Spokane, are you going to go to Sacred Heart or I guess it's now Providence, you know, the t- Holy Family? Where are you going to go? Are you going to come here to the Sanctuary? As long as I've been here, no one's come to the sanctuary. If you were a monoliter, you would. You see the difference? Because in the ancient world, when you go to the birthing place at one of the hospitals, you actually then are probably worshiping Asherah. So on the one hand, this psalm is saying that Yahweh, right, taking over from the Canaanite language, is the chief god and it's seeking ultimate allegiance. And then we get that very strange, very, very strange thing that doesn't work in the psalm. It doesn't make any sense. Um, The psalmist can't say, lift up your heads, O gods, because other gods were not allowed to be worshipped in the temple, or at least officially they weren't. So it turns to lift up your heads, O gates, which makes no sense, right? We talked with the kids. Gates swing. They don't lift up. But the gates are significant because you had to go through a gate to get into the city of Jerusalem. You had to go through a gate to get into the temple area. And you were checked out just like we are crossing a border each and every single time. And no one was checking to see if you washed your hands. Are you trustworthy? Are you loyal? Are you trustworthy and loyal to those in power? Um, So, Solomon, someone in Solomon's reign, most likely turned this great sort of Canaanite song into a song about Yahweh. And it moves towards the gates. In ancient cities, gates were the entrances and exits as well as the important fortifications containing usually at least two swinging gates and really importantly, pockets. Um, Just as an aside, the gates really didn't keep anyone out. They weren't that good. They slowed you down. Think of them almost like being, um, you know, a hurdle that you have to go over because the ancient gates were made in such a way that you had rooms off to the side and people with spears and bows and arrows. And so as you're trying to get through the gate, you're shot. Lift up your heads, O gates. Do you see how this is an orientation song? Keeping people in a certain place, keeping them under control. Rulers would sit at the gates and judge their people. So now think about this in the time of Solomon. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in the holy place? Those who have clean hands and pure hearts. If you read 1 Kings 1 and 2, you will discover that Solomon decided that most of David's cabinet did not. And so he killed them. And his brother Adonijah did not. And so he banished him and killed him. That question is heard in a different way, isn't it? In its first context. Those who believe the right things who act the right way and show the loyalty the right way, they will receive the blessings from the Lord. They will be in a position where God's vindication will come to them. And then the psalmist looks out, and if the gatekeepers have done their job, he or she is safe and saying, well, if you're in here, then you must be it. And that feels good, doesn't it? Let's just pause here for a second. Have we sometimes as Christian people sort of followed some of those assumptions? Have you ever on your way to church thought about all those irresponsible people having fun? They're not going to come to church, right? Have you? uh, I'll never forget when I was buying a house in another uh, city one time, and the person knew the salary I was going to receive and started looking, showing us houses um, according to what I could afford. And I said, I can't afford that. And uh, he said, Sure, you can afford it. I said, Well, what you haven't figured out is my tithe. Don't you ever feel a little superior? A little bit more pure of heart based on the commitments you've made as Christians? And sometimes, as the church, haven't we sort of thought, well, how do we attract people to come into our holy place and become like us? Is that fair? And even in the language, the Canaanite language of the psalm, that the whole world is the Lord's, but he has founded it in such a way that chaos isn't a concern. So if we have to struggle too much with what seems to be chaotic, which sometimes are people who bring us disorientation or different ideas, or they look differently than we do, or, you know, it could be any number of things. We sort of think, well, they're just not ready for our holy place yet. And is that a reason that for at least most of my life, I have seen Christians sort of struggle in what we call worship wars, in terms of finding infinity groups by style so that there's a church for everyone where they can feel comfortable and included and they don't have to mess with all those people who do it a different way. Well, if any of that's true, Psalm 24 is for you. And the Solomon, and last. I love the music with Psalm 24, right? Don't you? And lift up your heads, O gates, it's in Handel's Messiah. I mean, my gosh, I just love it. But then how do I think of who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And how do I think of myself as someone who wants to do that? And pure thoughts and clean, how do, how do I, how do I? Well, the music sort of just takes me there. And I think to myself, well, if I can hum it and if I can sing it, I must be it. Psalm 24, among some rabbis, we always have to say this. Christians in the past have made... Tremendous mistakes. One, thinking that they understand Judaism as if it is a single thing. And two, not recognizing that what we consider to be early Christianity is just actually an extension of Judaism. And so when Paul is struggling with some of this stuff, it's an inner Jewish dialogue. Um, This particular psalm, Psalm 24 is associated in Jewish traditions with the first day of the week, um, probably because of creation, and also uh, Rosh Hashanah, um, having to do with connection with God, perhaps. But at the time of the Apostle Paul, it seems that there's some evidence, at least among some rabbis, that this particular psalm or parts of it was supposed to be used in a blessing pronounced over kosher food. So then the issue becomes, you are pure if you follow kosher dietary laws, right? As Presbyterians, we don't worry about kosher dietary laws, but I'll tell you, if we break Robert's rules of order... You can't be a Presbyterian, that's a Methodist type of thing to do, right? So with all of this in mind, here's sort of the new orientation, or the surprise, or the wow, at least for me, in Psalm 24 as it comes into the New Testament. Paul says to the Corinthians, all things are lawful, but not all things are beneficial. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. So Paul, at the very beginning, is taking that question, who is worthy, and saying, by the law, it's irrelevant. But at the same time, it's not anything goes. The issue is building up the body, building up relationships. How do we do that? Do not seek your own advantage. Now how do you possibly read or sing Psalm 24, not seeking your own advantage? As you hear that, don't you want to enter into the holy place of God, which I think is in your advantage. So Paul's messing with this, setting this up. Don't think of your own advantage, but think of the other person's. Eat. Eat. Whatever is sold in the market, dealing with the issues of kosher laws, without raising any question on the ground of conscience, those of you who think that being of pure heart is so important. Why? And then Paul sings, Paul sings Psalm 24. Paul sings one line of Psalm 24, the line, the line in Psalm 24 that deconstructs everything else in Psalm 24, for the earth is the Lord's and all who are in it. Stop, period, drop mic. If an unbeliever, Paul says, invites you to a meal and you're disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any ground of conscience. Now it seems to me that this principle of the Apostle Paul could apply to a lot of areas of our life. Right? So again, I know that kosher law doesn't make a whole lot of sense to us, although a lot of us have become foodies, and I'm one of them, and you see me sort of picking and choosing pretty carefully when we have a potluck, and I feel bad about that, and I'm not really thinking about the person who baked it, but I'm thinking about myself. I have to be honest about that. But for... Those um, Jews and early Christians that were following kosher law, probably the reason why they were following uh, uh, kosher law is because they wanted to make sure that they stood within the people of God. Okay. Do we have some of those issues? Sexuality? Politics? I could go on for a long time, right? Do you know what new generations are looking for among Christians? The first line of Psalm 24. All the earth is the Lord's and everyone in it. Stop. Drop mic. Period. Period. I think oftentimes as religious people, we need everything else in Psalm 24 out of our own insecurity, not out of the work of God, out of our own insecurity that somehow there are other powers at foot, other gods like river and sea that we really have to worry about. So when we sing, who in our mind is included ascending to the hill of the Lord? Who do we believe can and will stand in God's holy place? Are we more comfortable with Psalm 24 or Jesus who said, Let the little children come unto me. Didn't check their hands. Didn't read their minds. For unto them is the kingdom of God.